This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good afternoon. My name is Johnny Gould. I'm here till four o'clock. And this is another episode of trying to find a solution to the Middle East conflicts which go beyond the borders of Gaza and the West Bank. There are too many stakeholders involved in peace and that's where we're going to extend this conversation. Israel is winning the war in Gaza but will need more time to complete the job of loosening Hamas's grip on Gaza amid international pressure ranging from calls for restraint to total ceasefires. Welcome to another how to make peace in the Middle East. And what we have to realize is that this war will only solve the immediate security issues of a hostile enemy facing Israel's southern border. There's many more stakeholders involved in this regional conflict. And like I said in the first show, peace is in our grasp once this war is won decisively and decisively it must be won. Ceasefire talk would put back the day of peace still further. Lord Cameron is calling for a pause, like we saw a few weeks back, to secure the release of more Israeli hostages. But every pause gives the terrorists vital time to regroup and move through Gaza, not just south, but north as well. And the proof that ceasefires kind of don't really work, that they only put the day of peace back one day further, is that this is the fifth war between Israel and Hamas since Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza in 2005. So we'll call this show another How to Make Peace in the Middle East. Now, in the first show on this theme, I knew she'd be popular, but I wasn't ready for 375,000 views on YouTube. It's on my Talk TV playlist with Dr. Enat Will, former member of the Israeli Knesset, prominent writer and thinker, who said it's time for the Palestinians to abandon their from the river to the sea right of return and build a Palestine in Gaza and parts of the West Bank, not treat it like a temporary stop-off waiting for the destruction of the Jewish state. That won't happen especially as the Gulf Arab world has accepted that Israel is part of the neighborhood. Our guest from the United Arab Emirates, Loe al-Sharif, declared that Jews and Arabs were meant to be together. The UAE and Israel's Abraham Accords is now nearly three years old, and despite this war, the fundamentals of why it was signed in the first place will come back into sight Soon, both nations forward-thinking innovators with new industries developing out of the old and critically facing a similar threat of Iran's regional ambitions. Colonel Richard Kemp demonstrated with statistics that Israel's army is going out of its way to avoid civilian casualties. And though the ratio sounds harsh, it is harsh, one for one, one civilian dies for every terrorist that dies. As commander of forces in Afghanistan, he told me the number was more like four to one in that war. Four civilians for every enemy combatant. 
That's what Richard said about Afghanistan and Iraq as well. So the building blocks from what we learned gives us succor and inspiration to tackle this biggest of subjects. And after the success of the show, here's another one with more guests. We're going to take it further. Uh, we're going to talk to Ken Mazik, founder of the Tel Aviv Institute, a veteran of the IDF and a humanitarian affairs officer in Kogat uh, in the West Bank. Kogat means the coordination of government activities in the territories. Uh, Baroness Claire Fox of Buckley, director and founder of the think tank, the Academy of Ideas. Dr. Elliot Soreen, orthopedic trauma and hand surgeon here in London, served as a doctor in Gaza, in South Lebanon and the West Bank. And his son, Ariel, actually survived the Nova Music Festival massacre on October the 7th. He lost a friend and a cousin murdered on that same terrible day on October the 7th. And he has a friend listed as a hostage in Gaza. We're going to talk also to Benjamin Anthony, CEO and co-founder of the Miriam Institute. He's also an IDF reservist and a veteran of the Second Lebanon War of 2006 and two Gaza Wars of 2012 and 2014. He also co-wrote and advocated for a peace plan called the New State Solution, which involved Gaza and North Sinai, currently in Egypt, to become the state of Palestine and the whole of the West Bank becoming mainland Israel. That might be a little bit obsolete, but it was a few years ago. And of course, the New State Solution, like so many peace plans, are movable feasts. And first, I'm delighted to have in the studio Barak Sina, Senior Fellow of the Henry Jackson Society and Associate at the Royal United Services Institute. A warm welcome, Barack. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio. Should we start with a hot potato that's gone on on these shores, which is the Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom, who has behaved like an ambassador during her tenure, kind of went back to her kind of Likud kind of idea and as ambassador felt it was time to say what she really thinks in her former political role, which is that the two-state solution is over. What do you say to that, Barack? Look, I think that a slogan should not be synonymous with actual policy. So a two-state solution sounds nice in the abstract, but from a British perspective or a European or American Western perspective, we need to consider what would be the strategic interests that we would have in a Palestinian state. In order to achieve a state, you need to lay the building blocks of civil society, good governance, liberal ideology, transparency and accountability. The Palestinians have none of that. Or if you look at Hamas that has a genocidal platform now... Where who kill Israeli who kill Israelis. and civilians who aren't Israeli inside Israel. And, and this is the group that the Biden administration seeks to revitalize. Stanford University had a poll that spoke about increasing discontent amongst Palestinians for Hamas. But it's misleading because that discontent is not an, at an ideological level. It's at the fact that they're seeing, okay, there's corruption, the fact that resources aren't reaching the people. So they're very disgruntled with Hamas on that. But if, I'm, if I can cite to you two polls that just demonstrate the sentiment amongst the Palestinian population that has been cultivated by Hamas, by 
um, Palestinian Authority, it's just quite remarkable. The Palestinian Centre for Policy and Survey Research, which is the Khalil Shikaki, they're very serious yeah. polls, it found that 72 percent of respondents believe that Hamas was correct to launch the October the 7th massacre. This was echoed by a Birzeit a university poll on November the 4th that has its Arab world for research and development when asked the question how much do you support the military operation carried out by the Palestinian resistance led by Hamas on October the 7th an overwhelming majority 63.6% said that they supported the attack extremely, right? And these are figures that come from the Palestinian comes side. Comes from the Palestinians. Yeah. Now, already beforehand, uh, by the way, in the West Bank it was higher. It was 83%, mm -hmm. right? It, um, in June, prior to these attacks, 79%, the Khalil Shikaki polls showed that 79% um, in the Gaza Strip and 66% in the West Bank favour forming armed groups such as Lion's Den and the Janine Battalion to strike at Israel. Eight, more than 85% said that the Palestinian Authority does not have the right to arrest members of these armed groups to prevent them from carrying out attacks against Israel. And again, this was reflected by the Birzeit University polls that showed 84% supporting Islamic Jihad, 80% supporting Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, 89% mm -hmm. supporting the Al-Qassam Brigade, and Hamas receiving 76%. But you're talking about an overwhelming majority of the Palestinian public that has been brainwashed, indoctrinated for decades, right. um, and it's been with our funding as well. This is the irony. Yes. There is funding going to the Palestinian cause from Western society. Okay. So let's try and unpack where we can solve this. And where we can solve this is via the Sunni Gulf Arab communities who have finally buried the hatchet, looked at Israel's foreign policy, shrugged their shoulders and said, well, they've never declared war on us. And we're talking about the Abraham Accord signatories of the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco and, amazingly, Sudan. And under the table cooperation with the daddy, Saudi Arabia. Now, obviously, the relationship with Saudi Arabia is on hold for the day after the war. But on the basis that those guys and that very, very significant population, the oil and gas rich energy leaders who are also threatened by Iran as well, who also believe in putting people on the moon, NEOM, divesting into golf and football and everything else that also Israel believes in, a two point naught, even a three point naught uh, economy. Is that where the solution comes from? Can we, with our Arab friends, go to their brothers and sisters and fund their de-radicalization so that when NEOM is built in Saudi Arabia in 2030, we may have an advocate at the table, a Palestinian leadership that isn't radicalized like it is today in such a number? Look, the question really, based on what you've said, is Will the Gulf Arabs manage to successfully de-radicalise the population by developing infrastructure? Yeah. Now, 
when I look at the West for all the US critique of um, the fact you have lot, General Petraeus saying we need to, uh, Israel needs to emulate the counterinsurgency strategy where radical Sunnis were peeled off by, from Al-Qaeda. Um, that only worked while America was occupying Iraq in, and it worked for a brief period of time mm. in, during the 2007 surge. As soon as American troops left, there was a spike in extremism once again. And um, I don't think, we, for all the talk of winning hearts and minds, we have never, ever been successful in counter-radicalization or winning hearts and minds, whether it be domestically or abroad. Um, so I just wonder whether developing infrastructure, throwing money at the problem, is synonymous with actually actively counter-radicalizing a population. It's just never been done before. Now, Israel is prosecuting this war at speed because, I guess, two reasons. First of all, the longer a war goes on, the more of its own soldiers die. And the second thing is public opinion, this constant noise from the United Nations, from the European Union, from the White House, saying on the spectrum from ceasefire now to a pause for humanitarian beliefs and then perhaps we can sort of move towards a ceasefire as Lord Cameron is talking about, but not yet. Uh, that means Israel is on a timeout situation that no other country has. On this exact point, I was speaking to Lord Andrew Roberts, um, who co-authored a book with General Petraeus um, about the way Israel is conducting this conflict. And I have to tell you, I'm quite critical of the way Israel is conducting this conflict, but for very different reasons that one would usually anticipate. If you're going to fight a war and you're committed to fighting a war, you need to recognise the tragic implications that there are going to be civilian casualties. Yes. Israel has this Monty Python-esque uh, way of fighting this conflict. John Kirby says Israel releases in advance maps showing target zones of where Israel plans to strike in advance. And he said, I'm not sure us Americans would do the same thing. So what happens is Israel goes into Gaza, it drops dummy bombs, it sends lots of texts, leaflets, where they're going to be striking. It gives Hamas the incentives to move their assets, take human shields, so that actually complicates the problem. Then afterwards it announces, well, we're going to be focusing on the north, civilians should move to the south. Yes. So what happens is, obviously, many Hamas operatives move to the south, including Yechia Sinwa, the architect of the October 7th um, attacks in a humanitarian convoy. The south becomes much more densely populated, harder for Israel to distinguish between civilians and combatants. As we saw with the friendly fire deaths right. of three Israeli hostages. And then it says... Um, we're going to establish humanitarian zones which we're not going to target at all, from which Hamas launches rockets from those specific areas. It's unprecedented for any military to be conducting humanitarian zones, humanitarian corridors, humanitarian pauses to discuss ceasefires 
were they are conducting warfare. And this only benefits Hamas. Um, it also, ironically, extends the conflict, it extends the duration of the conflict, by which Israel is subjected to greater international criticism, ironically, because it sought to minimise civilian casualties in the first place. So, this is an absurd situation. This is Barak Sina. He is a senior fellow at the Henry Jackson Society and an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. And this is another How to Make Peace in the Middle East. In just a moment, we shall ask Barak about Israel being held to a different standard and also welcoming into the studio Chen Mazig, a former IDF veteran and a humanitarian officer in the Israeli army as well and founder of the Tel Aviv Institute. It's all here at Talk TV. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And this is another How to Make Peace in the Middle East. And uh, yeah, look, we've got... Uh Another three and a quarter hours to fix that. And uh, we've got some of the very best guests and uh, thought provokers here. Two of them in the studio still with us, Barak Sina, who is Senior Fellow at the Henry Jackson Society and an Associate at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI. And I'm delighted also to welcome Chen Mazig as well. Chen uh, is a friend of mine of old and uh, Chen, founder of the Tel Aviv Institute, which is a think tank uh, trying to combat online anti-Semitism, a veteran of the IDF and a an humanitarian officer in the COGAT unit in the West Bank. COGAT stands for the Coordination of Government Activities in the Territories. Welcome along to you. Thank you so much for now, having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Chen. Now, I wanted to ask you, first of all, your job as a soldier was a bit different, wasn't it? It was looking after the locals and trying to be a friendly face of the IDF to the locals, is that right? Yeah, it was... How did that go? <laughs> quite challenging yeah. from, uh, on all fronts, not yeah. only from the Palestinian side. So what the Kogat unit is doing is working as an intermediary between the, um, the Israeli authorities and the Palestinian civilians, since Israel still controls the West Bank. Um, I, I served in Hebron, Ramallah and J Jerusalem, I also had some time in Gaza. Um, and my focus was to work on the humanitarian aspect, on the civil aspect, um, building hospitals, um, roads, uh, liaising with the UN, with the International Red Cross. Um, we were facilitating the uh, family visits of the uh, Palestinian families um, that had, um, uh, that were convicted Palestinian terrorists held in Israeli prison. And according to the Geneva Convention, you have to allow family visits once a week. So we were um, running all of this operation. It was very interesting. The Red Cross was quite often very vocal when we were um, delayed or if there was a five minutes delay in uh, uh, in the access of the Palestinian families to see their family their family members in Israeli prisons um, they would send out press release they would um, make a lot of noise in the media uh, and make sure that Israel would be held accountable if we were five minutes late uh, to bring Palestinian families to see their um, their loved ones but on the other hand, we're seeing them completely silenced. Uh, in the I was going to say, they're 70 days late actually seeing uh, Israeli hostages in Gaza, and we have 137 
still incarcerated, we, we hope, don't we? Uh, the Red Cross, where are you? Where have you been? Yeah, I think that's such an important point because the Red Cross, they keep saying that, you know, they're doing everything they can. They don't want to provoke Hamas. I mean, for crying out loud, this is, you don't want to provoke Hamas. What else can they do that they haven't done? You have to pressure Hamas. And they know that. I, I know the people that are working in the Red Cross. I worked with them on a daily basis for five years. Um, I just don't think that they care about the hostages as much as they care uh, about attacking Israel. It's almost like this DNA of all of this international organization. It's not about Palestinian civilians because they don't care when Hamas is killing Palestinian civilians. They don't care that Palestinian civilians in Lebanon and in Syria and in Jordan are living under actual apartheid with no with no rights they they are held in refugee camps they can't go to the same schools in Lebanon but then when it comes to Israel constantly outrage constantly and, and maybe it's because Israel is doing everything it can to improve constantly um, and the other side just doesn't listen which uh, begs the question and we uh, promised to uh, get an answer from Barack uh, just as we went into the break Barack Israel being held to a different standard to other countries in prosecuting their wars I think definitely this is modern anti-Semitism. Modern anti-Semitism is about double standards, demonizing Israel, and disproportionate criticism of Israel. I don't mind if somebody criticizes Israel on a policy basis the way they would criticize any other nation. But, you know, the irony of Zionism is it enabled anti-Semitism to mutate from an ethnic to nationalistic level. If somebody's intelligent and subtle, they won't say, I hate Jews, they'll say, I hate Israel. And as Martin Luther King says, they mean the same thing. But what you said, Chen, about Israel just trying to do better, right, it actually exposes the fact that Israel is a rational Western state, it exposes Israel to the vulnerability um, that the other side perceives it as not being rational and sophisticated, but weak to be exploited. I remember seeing this documentary called The Fog of War with former US Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara when he met Khrushchev decades after the Bay of Pigs crisis and Khrushchev said to him that he was willing to undergo nuclear annihilation Right. And, you know, being Western and being rational, thinking about cost benefit analysis, he was shocked. Uh, McNamara was just shocked. And it's the same here with the Palestinians. Um, for them, death is glorified. It's an ideal. The nationalism is predicated on genocide. So when they see Israel willing to make territorial compromises, um, which they interpret as weakness, according to game theory, they win and Israel loses. Which brings us on to a debate between you gentlemen about the two-state solution. Now it is, as you say, Barack, a pithy phrase. It sounds absolutely fantastic. And it sounds marginally better than the one-state solution, uh, doesn't it? Where um, Palestinian ideals mean that they move into Israel and eventually um, a civil war breaks out and then the Jews are pushed into the sea, which would create uh, just over seven million refugees and, for example, a sort of holocaust. And yet there are many people in Israeli society, Fen, who support a two-state solution. You're one of them, aren't you, Khin? Even today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, ha but who, 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 who are the reliable partners? Where's Hamas? They're not reliable partners. Yeah. They've said again. We're going to do this again, we're going to do this again, and they've done it again. In the 
worst possible way. The Palestinian Authority, they're not elected. They had one election. They won't have another one. 88-year-old Mahmoud Abbas knows that Hamas would win over there, as Barak said with his figures earlier on in the show. Where's this two-state solution, Khen? Where is it? We spoke about my military service as a humanitarian officer, and I think it gave me a better perspective on, um, on Israel, on this conflict, on working with different parties that have conflicting um, needs and having to serve everyone and trying to make um, peace. And maybe we'll start with the, with the end. What is the alternative? What is the alternative for a two-state solution? So if we're talking about one-state solution, the question is, are Palestinians in, in the West Bank and Gaza are going to receive equal citizenship? Because otherwise it would be what the, um, our directors are accusing us of, and I don't want Israel to turn into that. Israel is a democracy. I, wanted to keep, uh, I want to keep Israel as a democracy. And I don't think, as Barak said, I mean, we are held to different standards because we are in a different standard of of, uh, of governing and, and of a free society and I want Israel to remain a free society but we can't do it when we're still controlling areas where Palestinians live um, with in, in a different sets of rules and it's not in Israel within Israel proper Israel is I think is an example of democracy of course not perfect has a lot of work to do but it, it is a democracy um, but yeah when I'm trying when I'm listening to people on the other side I, I keep thinking well, they're seeing this in the same way they're saying well you know like you just said Abbas has been in power for so long. Yeah, Netanyahu has been in power for so long. Even though so he many was elected, Israelis, though, wasn't he recently? Right, <laughs> quite different, right? Yeah. Um, uh, the tactic is different, um, but yeah, I, I think that there must be alternative. The world needs to come together, and we need to help the Palestinian come out of their vi of this victimhood and and the yes. idea that they can't ever have a country of their. We're going to go to a call in just a moment, but Ren, who is the person across the table on the Palestinian side? that's going to negotiate with you and your team on the two-state solution. There isn't one, is there? There are young Palestinians that I'm hoping are, are seeing this and uh, and we don't hear them enough. And I think there are, I know them. You I, know that there are people I know that there. there are people out there. And just one word, I'm a Zionist. I believe in the right of Jews to our ancient homeland, but I can't advocate for the rights of the national rights of Jews while ignoring another people's right for a national um, self-determination. Um, can I just interject? I think that you're ignoring the statistics on the Palestinian side by Birzeit University and the Khalil Shikaki polls, which shows heightened radicalization amongst the younger people. I think that, um, I know that you don't want to occupy another nation, but you're projecting your values onto the other, and you're, it, actually your aspiration for peace is an obstruction. That's Barak Sina, and, and that is Chen Mazig, and um, we're being accused of a one-sided view, although we have two very different perspectives on the two-state solution. Let's get a third one in, uh, with Syed in London. Good afternoon, Syed. Hey, yeah, hello. Hi there. Yes, I'm, I'm the one who said that you have a very one-sided panel so far with an IDF person and with a person uh, advocating that Palestinians don't have a right of statehood. Well, I we believe in... Has, uh, these two yeah, gentlemen do have two very different views of the two-state solution, but far away, please tell us what you think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, uh, so, I think uh, he was quoting at length about this poll of Palestinians. I wish he had the courage to actually uh, quote the poll of the Israelis who think that the Israeli government is not doing enough and should be using even more firepower against the Palestinians. So the Israeli side is also as radicalized, and that is why they have people who would be classified as fascists in their government. In fact, some of them are actually people who were uh, who have um, charges like Ben Gavir, 
for inciting racism and they are people who are making genocidal comments about how Palestinians are animals and they don't deserve food, water, electricity. So the genocidal commentary coming out from the Israeli top leadership is deeply worrying. And that's why you see thousands and thousands of innocent Gazans being killed in ruthless attacks on a literally a daily basis. But for, for these panelists, that doesn't matter because this is all proportional. I don't know what sense of proportionality these guys believe in. So, um, if you would like me to respond, the Israeli electorate has shifted to the right. The reason why it's shifted to the right is when it, after decades of ignoring the genocidal charter that Hamas has and which is culturally mainstream amongst Palestinian society, suddenly they think, oh my gosh, these people don't want territory, they don't want statehood, they have a zero-sum game genocidal aspiration. And nobody deserves a state. You need to work for a state. You need liberal governance. When you had immediate elections in the Palestinian, in Gaza, it straight away empowered Hamas over a decade and a half ago. When you had immediate elections in Lebanon, you you, um, empowered Hezbollah. Um, There is a difference between liberalism and democracy. They're not synonymous with one another. The only thing that is in Western strategic interests is to see liberal democracies take root. I mean, I I don't think I'm closer to to any, actually. Both (laughs) sides, I think, have um, a perspective that I I do not share. On the one hand, with Barak, I I disagree completely with the the premise that because Palestinians are somehow um, uh, backward or or have genocidal aspirations, as you uh, frame it, um, that they don't deserve um, self-determination or that that affect in any way their right for a statehood or that they can't move out of the situation that they're at. Uh, And if we're looking at other Arab countries, we see where they are now and how they have progressed and to the point that we have a peace agreement with Egypt and, and, and Jordan and Bahrain, I mean those countries that we never thought we could reach an agreement with, but we have and I'm hoping I know that the public hasn't changed their mind and I know that the public is very anti-Semitic in Arab worlds, I, I know it because my, my mom is from Iraq and my dad is from Tunisia and they have been kicked out of those countries without anything but the clothes to their back but I can't in the same breath say, okay, this is what happened other people don't deserve these rights because of what they believe it. I don't I never said that the Palestinians are backwards but you need a multi-generational process of denazification in the Gaza you're talking about a Nazi philosophy that is mainstream you can't ignore that but you hear what he's saying the the caller he's saying the same thing he says there is a uh, there's racism on the Israeli side and he's right about some of the, the politicians that have made statements like we need to erase Gaza which is disgusting and abhorrent but we know it's condemned by the Israeli society but we have those politicians and we have radicalized groups within Israel. Israeli, you cannot draw an equivalence between the two. Israeli children do not study in their national curriculum if there are of six course. Palestinians yeah. and you yeah. kill two how many do you have left? That is mainstream in Palestinian discourse and in their educational curriculum. 
There is no equivalence between the two. With that part, I agree. But I think that we need to also be able to see the other side and understand that our view um, is our view. And this is one one of the positions that we have. But they have rights and they have. And and again, I really disagree because I think that there is a way to to promote human rights, promote equality and, and in this in this land. And the solution is not to say, well, we need to, you know, they don't have a right for a country um, because they have some anti-Semitic racist ideas. Um, in fact, I think that if we'll, they will have a country, maybe that will promote a change. We'll go to more callers in just a moment. David in Glasgow will be waiting for us. Hi, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. listen, I've got a, a, a slight issue here with this whole how do we make peace I had the privilege of, of looking after my grandchildren yesterday and the, and the oldest one who's nine and a bit just happened to glance the headlines of, of a newspaper. She asked me the question, why is, is Israel killing their own people? You're With talking about the tragedy the of these three hostages yes. who yeah. were mistaken. Yes. Correct, yes. Now this is a nine-year-old just reading this headline, being confused by it and asking me this very simple question. I couldn't, I couldn't answer that. I mean, when you, when you talk about how do we make peace in the Middle East, the question, how do we get the young people to make peace? You know, because in, in simplicity terms, this, this is my nine-year-old granddaughter, but totally confused. To, why is this, you know, why is this happening? And, and I, I just couldn't explain it to her. I just said it was a tragic mistake. And But why was it a mistake? And question after question you know it is one of the the darkest moments if not the darkest moment of very very dark dark moments of this war and perhaps if you could come back on that for david yeah i mean the question is why did this war started i think that's that's why it happened of course mistakes happen and it's tragic and israelis have been i mean the families i spoke to the families of the people that were did killed you? um i've I spoke to iris the mother of Yotam, and mm. my heart was broken because i was hoping so badly that it's going to be released and yeah. to know that this would happen in the middle of a war zone where hamas is using hospitals and schools and dressing civilian clothes and uh hamas terrorists in civilian clothes have uh, detonated suicide bombing vest the day, a few days before that on soldiers killing soldiers so soldiers in this situation I mean that's uh, I served in the army I've been to war I know that it's hell and I know that there's a fog of war but it's very telling that the Israeli army has not even used the idea of fog of war or saying that they're not taking full responsibility or blaming Hamas they took full responsibility and I think a society is judged not by its mistakes but how it's reacting to it so Israel has took responsibility and, and it says that they're going to um, to examine, examine it thoroughly, but it's tragic. There's no way to explain it. But one question is, why are so many people that are such um, stance anti-Israel um, voices that have been advocating against Israel's right for the last two months, now all of a sudden care about those hostages? Hostages that they said that don't even exist, and now they care about them? It's only because Israel killed them. Otherwise, they wouldn't care. They would say that they don't exist. They don't have, they don't deserve rights. They've been treated well by Hamas. But it's very telling how all of a sudden there's an interest in those hostages. That is Ken Mazig. He is a senior fellow at the Tel Aviv Institute, also the founder of that. I'm going to say thank you very much to Barak Sina for your expertise in the first part of the show. Senior fellow at the Henry Jackson Society and associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. And we'll expand the question to you, 03444991000, which David in Glasgow said, how am I going to explain this war to the younger generation if you have answers or clues on that plus your ideas for making peace in the middle east this is the platform to do it this is talk tv good afternoon i'm johnny gould and welcome along to how to make peace in the middle east 
Part two, another version of this, and it's been great to have Barak Sina in the studio. We've got more guests coming up. Baroness Claire Fox on the pro-Palestine marches, what it means to our society in this country and how it might put the day of peace back still further. Claire comes up. We've got Jonathan Sacerdotti coming into the studio as well. The IDF has embargoed new video and pictures of yet another tunnel they have excavated and discovered. It is going to be available for us all to see in the world from three o'clock. Jonathan will have that here. And we'll also talk to Benjamin Anthony, the CEO of Miriam Institute, who once scribed something called the New State Solution, which uh, over time things have overtaken it somewhat, like the Abraham Accords, which looked a little bit similar but it is, as always, my privilege to have Chen Mazig in the studio. Uh, Chen is an advocate for the two-state solution. He's a former Kogat soldier, which was the humanitarian version of the IDF, trying to coordinate Geneva Convention ideas between Palestinian civilians in the West Bank and their incarcerated uh, prisoner cousins and friends and, and, and family in Israeli jails are carrying out terrorist activities. But also, Chen, you are a terror victim yourself. Just 12 years old, you went for an ice cream and you were blown out of it by a suicide bomb. Yeah, I, I grew up in Petah Tikva. It's a small city outside of uh, Tel Aviv. And when I was 12, it was the heights of the Second Intifada. I think my story is something is one that many Israelis share a similar um, experience. Um, I walked into an ice cream shop near my house and as I arrived there, the place blew up. Um, there was a grandmother and her granddaughter, two years old, um, were eating ice cream and a Palestinian suicide bomber walked inside and exploded himself, killing both of them. Okay. And, you know, a few minutes away, I would probably not be sitting here with you today. I always remember, uh, you know, Dr. Enat Wilf, who was on the show in the first episode of How to Make Peace in the Middle East. She said going out for a cup of tea in Tel Aviv at that time was like an act of defiance. Mm. Was it really that tense all the time. Absolutely. Every day you, you would hear so, a new terror attack in the news, mm, something else. Mm. I mean, in a, in a cinema, uh, in a cafe, in a restaurant. It was a time that I remember being terrified. My, I think that's a lot of the trauma that my, my mom have until today. Uh, she always wanted to find out where I am and check on me. I think it all comes from that. From, that might uh, just be inbred, being a Jewish be mother. Jewish mother. Of, uh, right. Not sure, but... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but but uh, thank goodness, and of course, when you went to war, I would imagine that made it even more acute for her. Yeah, um, I think that you know Israelis are, are growing growing up like me, young Israelis, with so much fear, and and um, I don't know if fear is the right word, but just knowing that um, the future is uncertain, that you never know if you're going to go out and something might happen. I think October 7th really um, cemented that for us, that um, the sense of safety is something that we are um, not used to, to having. But it's very telling that Israelis still see, feel safer in Israel than they are in anywhere else in the world. That is incredible and true. Rabbi Leo D said it to me when he came here. Um, Rabbi Leo D, who lost his wife and daughters to a terror attack said we are armed and we know what we're facing and he feels safer at home in Israel and he lives I think in the West Bank mm. than he does for example in Hove or London what is that Chen? Yeah I think it's a question that 
our viewer, your viewers and, and non-Jews around the world should ask themselves. It's not a question that we need to answer. How come Jews feel more safe in Israel where they are being bombed, attacked, killed, murdered, kidnapped, slaughtered, abused in such horrific ways? How come they feel safer in Israel than they are in the rest of the world? Why am I, personally, I can share with you, um, living in London has been traumatic for me in the last two months. It's, it's terrifying to leave my house. I always walk around looking at people and asking myself, Are, have they been on the march? Have they called for the genocide of my people? Um, it's, a, it's a constant worry that you have. People that have been my friends, me and my partner's friends for so long, we have cut connection with because of their anti-Semitic hate, because they haven't checked on, on, on myself or on my family, um, because they don't see us as human. And that's what troubles me the most and I think it's something that troubles many Jews today. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Let's go to the calls now and speak to Colin in rugby. Hello Colin. Hello Johnny. Hi. Um, I've spent a bit of time in um, Israel of business. Um, I'm sort of retired so I've had a 30-40 year uh, long business career and um, something that struck me at the time because I was able to in the period 96 to well, 90, around 98 you were able to go to the West Bank and I used to go to kibbutzes things have gotten much much worse now of course my point is that we'll never get anywhere whilst the um, Palestinians only believe that they've got to eradicate the Jewish state this um, river to the sea narrative but the biggest problem has been on the Palestinian side is a complete lack of decent leadership. We had Yasser Arafat uh, at one time. Uh, then that all fell apart when the Israeli Prime Minister was assassinated. And it goes on like this. And in many ways, there is a thread which is similar to Northern Ireland, but this is much more difficult and, and um, intractable to solve. Indeed, because it's sort of it's to the nth degree, isn't it? It is it is yeah, a total um, victory for the Palestinian extremist, isn't it? That's right. The only way that this is going to uh, get uh, diffused is to have this sort of commission or this this meetings of people uh, similar to Northern Ireland, but I don't know where that's going to come from. It's certainly not going to come out of the Biden administration who, who bolstered the uh, stock of Iran by giving it $80 billion worth of oil sales. There was much more chance of getting peace with Trump, who actually starved the Iranian state. Colin, thank you very much for your points. That's the, the critical thing that Colin just mentioned here, that the Oslo Accords effectively sued Israel to try and find peace, whereas the Abraham Accords and the Peace to Prosperity Plan scribed by Jason Greenblatt sues the Palestinians to try and get to the peace table. Colin's onto something there, isn't he? In, in a way, um, I think that the Abraham Accords, while I'm a big supporter and I think they are amazing, um, 
have been a, it's it's a type of an agreement of of peace between countries and not by people. And I think the the important part is how we make peace between people. Um, and in Israel, there are so many organizations working to bring Palestinians and Israelis together. Um, and I think this type of conversations are going to make a difference. And I think that the bottom line is that young people are the ones that are going to lead that. And so far, we have leaders um, that have been in their chairs for decades. Oh, um, and, 88 uh, year old ones. <laughs> yes. And, and their ideas and, and what they see as um, as future, um, I don't think they think about us, about young people, about children that are just born uh, into this reality. For them, it's how much they're going to make and if they're going to keep their chairs. I mean, according to foreign reports, uh, Mahmoud Abbas is making a million dollars a month. Um, and Netanyahu is also has these concerns, um, not to compare the leaders, of course, but just to note that older uh, generations that have grew up with um, with wars and have a different perspective on this and probably care less about the next 30 years that they have in, left in their lives um, as much as we do about the future of, of ourselves and our kids and, and what country we want to see. There's much more energy with young people. On the subject of old leaders and who probably are serving the end of their time in their autumn, possibly even winters of their careers, let's talk to Christopher in Kent, who says that leaders aren't trying to engineer peace at all. Hello, Christopher. Welcome to the show. Hello, Johnny. Thanks for having me on. I have to say uh, straight away, I agree with a two-state solution. I'm no expert like the vast, vast majority out there in the world, but like you, similar age, I've grown up with this. It's not alone out there as a conflict that's just gone on all my life. And I'd love to find a solution. I'm sure most of us would. I wonder whether it's a bit of an elephant in the room, perhaps, but I, I feel that Netanyahu has played a major part in bringing about this awful tragedy recently and it's been on the sort of table for a while i feel that outsiders the u.s particularly who we know are the major ally and have a huge amount of influence have not done anything like enough for a long time i think back to clinton before him carter who really pushed the boat out i know there's a lot of cynics out there who think carter was a waste of time Clinton was this and that, but you have to take your hat off. They tried and tried and tried so hard to bring about peace, whatever their reasons, their rationale, but it unfortunately failed. They got close, very close, from what I can understand. We need that now. We need some... Right. Well, they, really they, got, they got very close, and then the Palestinians walked away, which is basically what keeps on happening. And now... We had the Trump administration who basically said that the Palestinians shouldn't have a veto on Israeli Arab progress, which is basically what the Abraham Accords was. Johnny, do you, do you really feel in your heart that it was the Palestinians entirely Arafat that, that spoiled that deal? Well, I'm going to ask that question. Let's, let's have Ken Mazig answer that question, Ken. I, I do think that it was the Palestinians that pulled out from this deal. I think that the Palestinian leadership was... I mean, do you remember the pictures of Ud Barak? Ud Barak oh, these yeah. days that is still speaking up in support of the Palestinians. So I, I do think that it was the Palestinian leadership that has pulled out. Um, I don't think Palestinians today need to be held accountable for the mistakes of their leaders. The same way that I don't think that Israelis should be held accountable for the mistakes of Netanyahu or that Americans are all Trump. Of course not. But And we know that leaders often get into those positions because of the 
rhetoric. Um, but with that being said, I mean the the Palestinians have been rejecting peace over and over again. So that's and that's factual. It's not even um, what I feel like. It's history. And they're doing that because they want a total victory, because they believe in history that eventually their numbers and Jewish history, their connection to the land will be severed by something in the future. That's what they believe, isn't it? Yeah, and I think this belief is something that um, Jews had in, in Israel when we first started the country. Mm -hmm. We thought that the British mandate does not belong there and we'll do whatever we can, including bombing the British mandate soldiers to make sure that they would get out of our land. And I think that's the failed proposition that the Palestinians have because they think that if they'll just commit enough crimes and, and violence against innocent Israelis uh, and, and young Israelis, maybe we would decide to move away. But we're not moving away because we are where we are from. This is our home. We have nowhere else to go. I can't go back to Iraq or Tunisia. I don't know. I don't think I want to. But you know, this is where our. Uh, this is the only place we we belong to. It's not Israel is not an empire, and I think that's the uh, what people fail to understand. That's Ren Mazik. Thank you ever so much for coming in today, and it's been a pleasure to have your company. Ren um, is a supporter of the two-state solution. However, that might come back and using. The fulcrum of young people. We've got to find young people who have another 75 years on earth, not the old boys. That's the secret. We've got to find them. Those are the advocates. Those are the future leaders. That's where peace can come from. And that's Ken's personal experience. 0344-499-1000. How to make peace in the Middle East. You're going to help me do it. It's Johnny Gould here on Talk TV. And coming up in a moment, Dr. Elliot Soreen a consultant, trauma and orthopaedic surgeon. Stay tuned. And welcome to this second edition of How to Make Peace in the Middle East. It was such an instant success last time. The reaction because of social media has encouraged me to do it again. And we really started putting in place the building blocks. The contention being that there are two conflicts here. One of them is near being solved and one of them which is raging out of control. So we have the Israeli-Palestinian conflict being played out in a terrible war in Gaza. But then we have on the other side the acceptance by the Gulf Arabs, the Saudis, the UAE, yes the Saudis, Bahrain, Sudan, even Sudan, and Morocco who say that Israel is part of the Middle Eastern family. In the fog of war, they have slightly retrenched. Some of the rhetoric isn't quite as kindly as it was. But nevertheless, the building blocks are in place when the dust is settled, when the Saudi Arabians win the World Cup, when they've built Neom, when they've put men on the moon, when they've used Israeli technology to do it that peace is out there. Peace is out there. And that is what this show is about. And you on the phones, 03444991000. Dr. Elliot Soreen is with us. Sir, thank you very, very much for joining us here in the studio. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honour. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks for having me here. Now, you are a British-Israeli consultant, an orthopaedic trauma and hand surgeon based in London, born in London, grew up here. You've also worked in South Lebanon, in Gaza and the West Bank as a doctor. You worked at the Tel Aviv Medical Center during the second intifada, which Ken mentioned. 
treating the bomb blast patients and shooting victims from the Dolphinarium attack, which was basically kids queuing up outside a Tel Aviv attraction on the seafront and they were blown up. Mike's place, which is underneath, I think, the American embassy. Correct. British Pakistanis blew it up, killed the security guard on the front, mindless, hapless, senseless violence. And indeed, more recently, your own son, Ariel, actually survived the Nova Peace Festival, this you know, sort of Woodstock thing going on a mile from the Gaza border on October the 7th, where basically the battalions went through and killed hundreds of kids just having a nice time dancing in the moonlight and having some fun. You lost a friend and a cousin who were murdered on that day, and you even have a friend as a hostage. Elliot, this is the credentials of someone who should be on this show, and you say that in a newspaper article that Hamas have been the scourge of your life for the last 20 years. Well, it's more than 20 years. It's, in fact, um, 33 years, in fact, um, during the I was, first... I was trying to be kind. OK, no, I'm, uh, I'm older. Um, <laughs> not like Ken, the previous speaker. But, no, I've known Hamas my whole adult life. Um, I... I um, Got to, it all began when I got talking to a beautiful Canadian girl um, in Tel Aviv called Marnie Kimmelman um, on the 28th of July 1990 and the next day she was killed by a Hamas bomb which was planted on the beach by a terrorist called Yasser al-Hijazi. I studied medicine and I did my military service, my regular service as a doctor inside southern Lebanon. That was against Hezbollah. When I returned uh, to Tel Aviv I, I did my trauma surgery training in the Tel Aviv Medical Center. And it was Marnie Kimmelman's family who donated the trauma room, the recess room. So her picture was on the wall. And yes, I operated on the wounded from uh, the Dolphinarium, um, mutilated horrifically injured teenagers. Mike's place, um, two British uh, Pakistani terrorists. Um, I had to amputate two arms that evening. Um, the Seder night bombing on Passover, on Pesach, the Park Hotel bombing with horrifically injured elderly people, Holocaust survivors, uh, many, many other bombings. I've also operated on Hamas terrorists themselves. I've treated them uh, from the shooting in the seafood market. My wife is a paediatric intensive care nurse and she's had to look after the children uh, of, um, of Hamas terrorists who have what's called a work accident when they're preparing a bomb at home and the, the house explodes. So yes, Hamas has, been, Hamas has been a large part of my life. And uh, once again, my son um, uh, survived this uh, horrific uh, massacre. Uh, 364 were killed at that party. And that was on a day when over 1,200 killed uh, the biggest massacre which we've seen in the history of Israel. If you look at it in terms of the United States, it's kind of 15 times the size of 9-11. So yes, um, I'm very familiar with this. Uh, I've, I've also taught uh, Palestinian doctors from Gaza. I've taught Palestinian residents in Tel Aviv. I've trained them. It's been a large part of my life. Right. So there's a lot going on there. Can you just explain, first of all, how Ariel survived? Because hundreds didn't. So the story is, I'm very proud of my son, I'm very happy he's alive, and um, my hearts are with the family of those that have, uh, did not make it. My hearts are with the family of the hostages, um, with uh, Miran Ziv, the wife of uh, Shlomi Ziv, a friend of mine, who is still listed as amongst the hostages. But my son, um, the story is, I woke up on that morning, it was Simchat Torah, it was a Jewish festival, uh, Saturday morning, started listening to the news, I heard something was going on, I um, telephoned my son, 
and uh, on WhatsApp, and it went to the WhatsApp video, which I don't normally do for some reason. You know, sometimes you press on the wrong button, and he's holding the phone up, and he's running in a field, and I had no idea what was going on, and he just said, listen, I can't talk, I can't talk, I can't talk. I just thought that was all very peculiar. What I didn't realise was he didn't want to worry me. He was actually being hunted um, as he was running. My son arrived at the festival, and he was... Early, much earlier on in the middle of the night he got there and he was the designated driver um, uh, and um, when he heard the mortars and the the rockets saw the rockets in the air and he heard mortars land he said to his friends let's pack up it was sort of Glastonbury thing they've got their kit they've got their tents there he said let's pack up let's get out of here because it's gonna they're gonna stop the uh, festival uh, let's go and get to the car park before there's a, uh, a rush and on the way to the car park he heard the music uh, uh, stop he got in the car started driving but large traffic jam and then he saw a woman uh, close by being shot in the head and my son had the foresight to tell his friends to leave the car and they ran those that stayed in the car uh, I, I think it's important to understand the level uh, we're talking hundreds of terrorists um, my son he said he saw them armed with rocket propelled grenades uh, uh, with AK-47s uh, um, because it was a battalion, the, 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 the were, the were, the were, and they just arrived through the broken fences and hand glided there. It wasn't, you know, 15 people, it was hundreds it of was terrorists. It was over 3,000. 3,000 terrorists. As he was running, and it's very open fields, there's nowhere to hide, as he was running people were dropping beside him, and he saw, um, on, they were on jeeps firing a, a 0.5 calibre Browning machine gun, and these bullets, they can, they'll make a hole the size of a watermelon in, in a body. And he saw people dropping beside him, and he just ran and ran and ran, and, um, and it turns out, I'm very proud of my son, um, by pure coincidence, he bumped into his cousin, Marianne, uh, who was frozen, hiding on the ground. He grabbed her to come with him. Um, and also he had a friend that was uh, a bit high, um, who he managed to grab with. He saved a few lives, myself. I'm very, very proud of him. Um, he kept on running. And as they kept running, they were constantly hunted. He ran 15 kilometres, uh, my son as well. The Nova Festival was only a small part of that day, whilst it was 364 uh, killed. I've treated many wounded from uh, bombing attacks, from shootings. I've seen mutilated teenagers. I've seen uh, elderly people. The horrors of that day are beyond anything. I've spoken to colleagues of mine. The level uh, of mutilation, of atrocities, of torture, uh, of burnings, uh, beheadings. Uh, we're talking um, pure evil that happened on that day. Um, something we have not seen um, in the history of Israel. We haven't seen this since uh, 1929, since the uh, Hebron massacre. Yes. Now, you say you've operated also on Palestinian terrorists, on Hamas terrorists, you put them back together, and even those people who've blown themselves up by accident in their own home. Have you talked to any of these people? Did they say, thank you for saving my hand? And did they say to that afterwards, oh, we're still going to kill you? This is, this, is, this is the sort of narrative that seems to go on every time an Israeli surgeon operates on a Palestinian terrorist. Listen, in a hospital, we don't have politics. We, don't, we work together. It's important to understand that 20% um, of Israelis are Arabs. The vast majority of them are Muslims. Uh, the head of the department, which I trained in, uh, is a Christian. Uh, the deputy head nurse is a Muslim. Uh, we work together. We live together. It's not like uh, people... I, I realise people give a very distorted narrative in the West. It's important to understand that... Um, that many of the killed, the murdered, 
on the 7th of October were Israeli Arab Muslims. Hamas shot uh, Muslim women in the face when they were wearing their hijab. Yes. Uh, 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 they took um, uh, Israeli Arab Muslims as hostages. Uh, thankfully, uh, uh, from the Ziadna family, Aisha and her brother Bilal were released. We still have... Um, uh, two members of her family still uh, inside Gaza, along with Hisham al-Sayed, another Israeli Arab Muslim who's been there for nine years. I see no differences in Israeli between a Jewish Israeli, a Muslim Israeli, a Christian, a Druze, a Cherkessi, a Baha'i. We're the only country in the Middle East which allows Ahmadi Muslims to live in peace. We're a very multicultural society. People do not understand this. There is a narrative being pushed. Um, I've seen on TV, um, I can only call it a a feeding frenzy of fools. I'm seeing British Pakistanis, British Bangladeshis, I'm seeing uh, convert talking utter nonsense. Okay, these people have never, probably never been to the Middle East. I speak Arabic better than any of them. Shukran. And um, I speak, I'm from the region, okay? So it makes me laugh. It doesn't make me laugh. It's sad yes. when I see people trying to turn this into conflict. But going back to your question, in a hospital, we don't have politics. In a hospital, terrorists, which I've treated are polite. In a hospital, they do say thank you. And in a hospital, they do say, uh, I'll meet you one day on the battlefield. And they right. come out with the, these right. phrases. And it is upsetting. Uh, obviously. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it's not like on Grey's Anatomy where a doctor has these internal conflicts about treating patients. A patient is a patient. I treat the fracture. I treat the wound. Um, it's harder for my wife. Being a nurse is more intimate and more connections with the family on a day-to-day -day level. So it was harder for her. But um, it's not like Grey's Anatomy. We're very professional. And also, I, I want to say that um, it is Israeli Jews... Um, Christians and Muslim soldiers together fighting, uh, and Druze and Cherkessi fighting uh, uh, the Hamas terrorists now as we talk. Dr. Elliot Sorin, a consultant trauma and orthopaedic surgeon, is with us. 03444991000. Let's take some calls. And firstly, Marshall in Leeds. Hello, Marshall. Hi, Johnny. How are you doing? Yeah, all right. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, um, I'm okay. I mean, um, I'm, as, I'm as okay as. Probably the majority of the Jewish community at the moment here in the UK. It's a testing time for everybody. Um, I, I just wanted to pick up on a few points. Firstly, what Chen said earlier: children are not taught to hate, are not born to hate. They are educated to hate, and that's one of the biggest challenges that the Middle East has. That sadly, and it's proven, it's not. It, it, you know, we, we've seen the, the proof behind this. A lot of the Palestinian kids are taught to hate Jews, hate Israelis, and to understand that the only way, the only good Jew is a dead Jew, the only good Israeli is a dead Israeli, and that has to be eliminated. But there are prime examples of how coexistence can, can, can work, and, you know, Dr. Elliot suggested and, and mentioned how it works. I can tell you from personal experience, I lost my father six and a half years ago. He was in a, in a hospital in, uh, in Kfar Saba, which is north of Tel Aviv. It's uh, a multicultural area. A lot of the, the patients are from the territories there, there's arabs there there's jews there's christians for the last three weeks of my father's life he had a, a palestinian nurse he had a russian doctor he had a, a christian arab personal carer and i could not have asked for better care for my father under no circumstances if you go to haifa people live in coexistence it's not perfect 
but there's hope. And as long as there's hope, then there has to be there has to be positivity. And, and, and I just, you know, there is what frustrates me more than anything is that we see all these protests on the street. And what I've experienced in the last month, I've experienced the hate marches in Leeds. I've seen the hate marches in London. I was on the I was on the uh, the march in in London for uh, against anti-Semitism, which was which was the most remarkable experience. I've been to Israel twice since the war started. I came back last Sunday. I've got my son there. I've got my mum. I've got my immediate family. My mum, who's an 83-year-old Holocaust survivor, who is immobile. So when the sirens go off, when she where she lives, she cannot get to an air raid shelter. We've had to make her home a little bit more secure for her because we know we can't get her out in time. And she's 80, nearly 84 years old. She's a Holocaust survivor. It, it's not right. It's not right. Marshall, what would you say to people who are watching or listening to this who've been on multiple Palestinian marches, what you've heard from Elliot and your own eyewitness view? What would you say to them? Yep. Where were you or where are you protesting against the, uh, the Chinese and the, and the horosities that are occurring in China to the Muslims? Where were you, where are you with the Syrian massacre of Muslims? If this isn't anti-Semitism at the core, then what is it? Because you've been silent up until now and you've jumped on the, man the bandwagon and taken the opportunity. And as Barack said earlier, this is modern anti-Semitism. You can't have it both ways. If you want, and I absolutely agree with Hen that there has to be the right of self-determination, and I pray that there will be peace. But if you are really, really, truthfully wanting to support Muslim rights, then you cannot do it just when it, includes, when it involves Israel. You have to be on the side of Muslims that are being mistreated globally by other people as well. And when you are boycotting Israeli stuff and thinking that you're helping by boycotting Muslims, um, mcdonald's and starbucks and places like that please don't do it from your iphones don't do it from your android handsets don't do it from your laptops that are using israeli technology because you're making fools of yourselves because a lot of the iphone technology was created in tel aviv the tech circle absolutely indeed. absolutely absolutely marshall thank you very much indeed marshall in leeds uh, we'll have more from dr elliot sorin and your calls on how to make peace in the middle east are you getting there should we all help each other do that? 03444991000. I tell you what, I'm very touched by some of the instant reaction that we get on text and on social media. Join in, please, 87222 and tweet at Talk TV and at Johnny Gold. Got Dr. Elliot Sorin in here. And this comes from Emmy Rose. It's just uh, dropped on my Twitter. Johnny, if anyone still believes that Hamas are the good guys after listening to your interview with Dr. Elliot, I consider them beyond any hope. Also, I would like to send my love to the Jewish people. Thank you very much for that. This is about peace. This is about making peace. And peace is out there. I really believe that. 03444991000. And so does this man of faith, a doctor, a hand surgeon, a trauma surgeon. His name is Dr. Elliot Sorin. And also, you have tried to do a lot. These are your words in Israeli education online in the Arabic world to Arabic people all over the Arabic world, North Africa and the rest of the Middle East on coexistence and what, but not over the last few months, as you can imagine. So basically in good faith, before October the 7th, you speak Arabic 
you live and work within an environment where you deal with Christian Arabs, Bedouin, you know, Russians, everybody's there. And you all sign the Hippocratic Oath, which means that you serve people who are Hamas terrorists and local Israeli old people as well with equal fortune and equal fervor and opportunity. Where does October the 7th leave you in terms of faith in your Arab-Israeli cooperation? Okay, so firstly... We're not at war with the Palestinian people. We're not at war with the Palestinian Authority. We're not at war with the people of Gaza. We are at war with uh, Hamas and the other Islamist terror groups who seek to exterminate us. And we are now an unprecedented situation where we are aligned with Arab countries who also have the same existential enemy. These groups, whether it be Hamas, Islamic Jihad, uh, Daesh, Hezbollah, they are fingers on the hand of the Islamist regime in Iran, um, which threatens the stability of the whole region. These organizations which are illegal in the Arab world, these organizations which threaten our friends in Saudi Arabia, uh, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, um, etc. Um, so we're in an unprecedented situation. We're different Israelis in that even after the terrible wars, the second we made peace with Egypt, we flocked to Egypt. Even after fighting large wars with many deaths, we never hated Egyptians. Likewise, after the war with Jordan, we went to Jordan. I went to Jordan, I've been to Egypt, I've been to all these countries. Um, we don't have this ingrained hatred. Unfortunately, in the Arab world, um, there are many people who have never seen a Jew before, even though there were so many Jews. My wife um, is from Tripoli. One quarter of Tripoli uh, was Jewish. There is now not one Jew in Libya. Uh, Baghdad, one quarter of Baghdad was Jewish and, and so on. Um, so there's a lot of education. There is interest now in the Arab world. Um, unfortunately, you know, um, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. The words of Abba Eban, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem went with Nazism, then they went with secular Arab nationalism, and now they're going with um, Islamism and the Islamist regime in Iran, and they're out of sync with the rest of the Arab world. This is a problem. It is a deep problem that the majority, according to polls, according to Palestinian polls of Palestinian society, does support uh, this ideology. Um, however, there are a minority of Palestinians who do want reconciliation, who are prepared for coexistence. There are a minority. And I believe that people can change. I believe that um, this ideology can be removed uh, from the Palestinian people. Uh, and, I, and I am optimistic. But and it's not in this generation, is it, Ellie? It's what Ken said. He's looking at the kids. Well, listen... Um, the Snapchat generation who see the rest of the world for the first time. I don't know about... There is a problem, you are correct. There is a problem with young people. I see this as a problem that they don't speak to other people, that they are do spend a lot of time staring at devices. When I see these people in London at marches screaming, Chayba, Chayba, Ya Yehud, screaming, Min al-Nahar, il al-Bahar, Min al-Maya, il al-Maya, Palestine, Arabia, calling... Uh, for the extermination of Jews, calling Intifada. I know what is Intifada. I've seen it. I know what Intifada is, okay, in our context of Israel. Intifada is the murder of, of men, women and children. Intifada is limbs being torn apart with bombs full of nails and ball bearings. Intifada is people sitting in a restaurant uh, uh, being killed. Sitting, that is what Intifada is. But people in London call this 
I realise many of them are stupid. I realise many of them have never been to the Middle East. I realise many of them don't even understand the words they're saying. They don't know which river and which sea they're talking about. However, it is a problem in the younger generation. Um, and I hope uh, they will change. With respect to younger Palestinians, I do believe people can be changed. I do believe ideologies can change. I look at a country like Morocco, um, how they talk about Jews. I look at Saudi Arabia. I look at the Emirates. I, I look at countries which have changed. Um, I do believe things can change. And I do believe, listen, uh, Germany was denazified. Gaza can uh, be de, uh, have this Islamist uh, uh, um, ideology removed from Gaza. I do believe in it. I believe in the fundamental good of people. I have to. You have to, like many Israelis and indeed in your job as a surgeon. We've got breaking news here, which is that the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, say they found Hamas tunnel shafts under a baby's cot. They say troops discovered a tunnel shaft used by Hamas fighters inside a children's room in northern Gaza. Forces made the discovery under the cot in the basement of a building in Jabalia and IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari said, posting footage of the alleged discovery, the tunnel shaft included built-in stairs and was destroyed by the brigade's engineering forces. We will have those pictures with Jonathan Sacerdotti right here on Talk TV after three o'clock. They are embargoed until that time and we will have them first and fastest in the studio. 03444991000. Uh, with apologies to Stephen in Northern Ireland, uh, we've been keeping him waiting, but uh, your time has come, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Oh, hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Stephen. Um, I was listening intently, actually, to what your previous contributor said, and I think it's very true. Germany was denazified after the Second World War, as, as was, in its own way, Japan, which had been a, a virtual death cult under the uh, blindly following on following the the emperor but um the only way this was managed to be done was that the was that occupying forces occupied both of those countries for at least a generation if not longer until until their evil ideologies were, were actually wiped out now i wouldn't expect the israelis to be doing this because the world would be up in arms about that but if they really want a lasting peace that is the only path to take, and once they have done that, and it proves to be successful, then the Palestinians should be granted a separate state. But before that, to simply throw um, a landmass at the, at, the, at the Palestinians and say, here, get on with it, this is your country now, it would prove to be as viable as Gaza was when the Israelis left Indeed, the mistake that was made in 2005, as it, as it appears to be, because then Hamas won the election shortly afterwards, killed all the Fatah rivals, the Palestinian Authority people, the PLO, and created basically a terror state which has now, for the last 18 years, lobbed rockets exactly. at, at Israel. You, you can't just throw liberal democratic principles at people and expect them to get on with it. Mm -hmm. Liberal democracy has to be cultivated. It needs time to take root as anything takes time to take root, and that is literally intergenerational. And the only way to do that is to actually occupy. I don't mean in, in, a, in a bad yeah. militaristic way, but just to, you know, just to keep society steady until such time as they can take the reins on themselves. Stephen, thank you very much. Very valid points indeed. And, Elliot, I was with... Um, some of the kibbutz people from the south, or at least the families of some of the hostages, the commitment 
to rebuild Nahal Oz, the closest settlement to the Gazan border, so close that Iron Dome cannot protect it. Those people have seven seconds to get to their shelters, and which is obviously a crime scene now. No one's there at the moment. They've been pushed up to live in hotels in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and other places. But the commitment to go back and live there, Be'eri, the other kibbutz, and indeed Sterot, a major city in the south, a very nice place. I went recently to see it, but of course, again, it is totally empty for now. But the commitment to return there must be honoured by some sort of buffer zone. And as Stephen implied, a positive occupation by the IDF. It's unavoidable. It can't be an international group, can it? It has to be the IDF. It has to be the Israeli government. In order to protect Israelis who cannot be told by the jihadists where they live in Israel. Also, it's a food basket. It's a place where Israel needs to grow its tomatoes and its oranges and various other things. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, we've been there. I served, I did my uh, reserves inside the Gaza Strip. We're going to have to remove um, this organisation. Just going back to what you were mentioning before about the uh, the cynical use of a child's bedroom for a tunnel, mm-hmm. it's important that people understand the concept of asymmetrical warfare, that we are dealing with it. These terror groups do not uh, uh, follow the rules of war. Uh, they do um, use schools, uh, mosques, um, residential buildings. Um, they fire their rockets. There are many open areas. I know there's a myth in the West that Gaza is one contigu- uh, continuous urban area. It certainly is not. There, You can look on Google Maps. There are many open areas. Um, they only fire from within densely residential areas. They do not have shelters for their civilians. They only have underground uh, uh, shelters for the Hamas members, their men. I know they wear like a niqab and they uh, dress up as women, some of them, and cover their face apart from their eyes in a weird type of auto-gynophilia. That's something else. That's another matter. Can you translate that for us, uh, well, they, they sort of cosplaying as women. I, I don't really get it. That, that, that's something else. Okay? Um, they do actually, joking apart, do wear uh, uh, um, women's uh, uh, clothes when moving from place to place. Right. They'll move with children around them. Um, in spite of that... Um, we have a very low collateral death rate. Um, in Western armies, it's often nine to one, nine civilians per one combatant. We've killed so far 7,500 um, Hamas combatants uh, inside the Gaza Strip. That doesn't include the 1,500 that were killed on the 7th of uh, October. And these are IDF figures. These are Israeli, these are Israeli military figures. figures. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Hamas... We're not quoting the health ministry here on this show. Listen, uh, ever since uh, the Janine episode in 2002, when the whole world talked about the Janine massacre of 1,200 civilians killed, and at the end it was 22, um, which is 22, is still horrific. Listen, any unarmed combatant who dies, it is horrific. One is one too many. Unfortunately, in war this happens, and unfortunately... It's it's also important to understand that 20% of the rockets they fire land short within the Strip. Only a few days ago, they fired from within the safe area, the Mwasi, the safe agriculture area where uh, the civilians uh, are are safe. They fired from there and many of the rockets landed short. We saw a rocket uh, fired towards uh, the Temple Mount, uh, Masjid Al-Aqsa, which we took out in the sky. We saw a Hamas rocket, by the way, hit a Palestinian hospital in Ramallah, in the West Bank. Uh, I don't think that's reported on uh, international news. 
what you mentioned is it, it also is paramount to understand. We're talking about 160,000 Israelis that are also displaced from their homes uh, uh, due to the situation. In fact, the reason my son is coming here now is um, he's doing his university by Zoom because his university was hit by rockets. So he's, wow. uh, he's not going uh, there. I mean, it's... Um, it's a very complex issue, very complex. It is important I, that people understand the concept of asymmetrical warfare, to understand this is warfare which we lose the element of surprise. We give a warning before we go into an area. We send text messages. We send, um, actually telephone uh, uh, people within Gaza. We drop flyers and we go from room to room, house to house. Uh, we put our soldiers at risk uh, because that's what we do. We don't. No other military does this. And... Um, I'm proud of what we do, but I realise whatever we do, there will always be those that condemn us. And unfortunately, there are more and more people who do support uh, these terror groups and their ideologies, even in the United Kingdom and certainly on the streets of London. 03444991000. Talk to Dr. Elliot as Khalid in Leicester is going to do now. Welcome, Khalid. How are you doing? Yeah, all right, thanks. Tell you the truth, I think, look, somebody, a people who have been oppressed for 75 years. When we talk about Syria, we talk about... Um, the Uyghur Muslims, we've all been protesting. You can't see, you probably haven't seen marches on the, on the, on the streets of London. But still, we have been, we've been condemning that. We've been lobbying our MPs, we've been petitioning. You don't see that behind the scenes. But anyway, look, as far as this is concerned, 75 years of oppression. All my whole life, I've seen nothing but oppression. I, look, just look it up as well. How do I stop being a Zionist? It's on YouTube as well. A Zionist went from the occupied territories. He went to Rome. A long story, but then basically, in a nutshell, he was appalled and disgusted. Just within six hours, he said, "If I was living here under this oppression, I would be. I would be part of a resistance group myself." There's no way anybody could put up with this for decades. It was six six hours, and he was appalled. So this has been ongoing. So, for Khaled, why years. can I ask why don't you guys who are on that side of the argument build your own state? Why don't you go for a divorce from Israel? That's, that's the whole idea. Because why why can't because the Gazans say, hey, you know, we had an okay place here. We were integrated with Israeli society economically. 18,000 Gazans were allowed through Kerem Shalom each day to do jobs, which were, you know, three times, four times, five times better paid than they get at home. The uh, nominal currency is the shekel. Um, there's a, a Twitter feed called Imshin, which before this war showed that Gaza was not a prison camp. It might be heavily populated, but there's a very nice beach there. There was a reasonable society. Why couldn't civil society be formed? Why isn't there an uprising against Hamas? Why is that not happening? Why can't Why? you divorce yourself from Israel and declare your own river to the sea back home. Why can't you accept the truth? They've been penned in for 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 for, 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 50, for, for, for uh, so many years. Right? They've been every, everything that goes in, everything that comes out is is uh, vetted and is allowed because or not allowed. Because rockets to come, come over and Israel needs to defend itself. This is this is that 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 idea and this 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 um, what do you call it um, this uh, polluted sentence that you say keep on saying everyone keep on saying this is it polluted that Israel has a right to defend itself they are the occupying force they they continuously control every aspect of a Palestinian life even in the West Bank they're continuously building illegal settlements taking more and more lab, grand lab, uh, land grabbing throwing out throwing out their houses controlling every aspect of their life even ladies have been um, uh, what do you call it is documented. It's 
told, verified, they've been made to give birth at checkpoints when not being allowed to go to hospitals and the babies have died. This sort of oppression that takes place. If I lived there, if I was there, believe me, I don't think I would put up, put up with this for a week, let alone decades. Final word to Dr. Elliot on this. Yeah, I mean, listen, Khaled, you um, I'm sure you don't even speak Arabic, but you need to learn a little bit about the region, my friend, in Leicester. We, Israel has not been occupied the Gaza Strip since 2005. We left the Gaza Strip. We left all of the agriculture, all of the greenhouses to supply Marks and Spencers with uh, organic vegetables and fruits. We left all of the irrigation systems. We left everything. Bill Clinton himself came to inaugurate an airport in Gaza. Uh, we fund the amount of uh, finance that went into Gaza was incredible. However, Hamas took over and they fired rockets and declared war on the state of Israel. We haven't set foot in Gaza since 2005. This mantra of 75 years of occupation is nonsense, and I know you watch it on your TikTok videos, Halid, uh, from Leicester, but um, uh, the Gaza Strip was occupied by Egypt until 1967, between 67 and uh, 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 2005 by Israel. Since 2005, no Jew has set foot in Gaza apart from those who were taken hostages. And also, that being said, even under Hamas, Gaza, no one's hungry in Gaza. You're talking about one of the highest levels of obesity in the Arab world. You're talking about shopping centres. No one's homeless. You've got people in Egypt living on the streets, uh, sleeping in graveyards. You really, uh, I realise if, if you're watching TikTok videos, then you're going to be confused. Um, but... Um, we have no interest whatsoever, and we had no interest in going into Gaza, uh, going back to Gaza. I spent a lot of my adult life inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, no interest whatsoever in my son having to do the same thing. Um, listen, it's um, okay, this, this mantra of people, the Palestinians could have had a state in 47. They could have had a state um, in nine times we've offered a state. There has never been a people in the history of the world who claim to want self-determination that have refused statehood. The Irish accepted less than they wanted. The Poles accepted less than they wanted. The Greeks accepted less than they wanted. The Jews were accepted less than we wanted. The Armenians, every person, uh, every people in the world who's been hungry for statehood has accepted less. There has never been a people that have refused. Not just once, not just twice, but nine times. The reason they refuse is they don't want a state and they've never wanted a state. Dr. Elliot Soreen, thank you very much indeed for joining us and telling your story here on Talk TV. We're going to go to the Knesset after this break and talk to Simcha Rotman, an Israeli lawyer, uh, an activist, a politician, and he's a member of the Religious Zionist Party. His take on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict follows this short break. How to make peace in the Middle East. Johnny Gould, Talk TV. Jenny in Wales, welcome to the show. You're on Talk TV, how to make peace in the Middle East. How are you going to do it? I, was, I listened to a lot of things, and I was listening to a chap talking to the UN. He's actually um, the son of a, a person who co-founded Hamas movement. And he said that October the 7th was chosen because that was Putin's birthday. It was a birthday present for Putin. Wow, that's terrible actually, thing to say. Well, this is what he said to the UN. If that brings in Putin into it, then that means you can't have peace in the Middle East because... Putin's about everything. Putin is about himself 
and entirely his self-interest, then I would suggest that he's about himself above even the Russian people because he weaves a very difficult web. And Mohammed bin Salman nominally is on the side of Israel in this well, war. And I say that with an asterisk because they do talk about the Palestinians as their brothers and sisters. But also there is cooperation between Israel and Russia in Syria, where Russia is an occupying force. And yes. the reason why Russia and Israel cooperate over Syria, in other words, when Israel needs to knock out some Iranian problem which threatens their borders directly, Russia and Israel cooperate and Israel tells Russia we're about to bomb an Iranian part of Syria. Uh, will you get your Russian soldiers out of harm's way? The reason why Russia and Israel cooperate is because it means that Russia doesn't have to confront Iran in Syria because Russia and Iran are competing imperial powers in Syria. So when you tell me that he's seeing MBS... And when you see that he's also in negotiations with Iran to uh, aid the war in the Ukraine, you can see that Putin will do absolutely anything on any day to either side. Delighted to say that Simcha Rotman is with us, an Israeli lawyer, an activist, a politician, currently a member of the Knesset. Simcha, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, the first thing I wanted to say, is the term far right a fair way of describing you and your party i don't think that my position are far <laughs> from uh, that's from what i wanted time. to ask you we, we yeah. hear that so often so i wanted to ask you that question yes um i i uh, i think um it's it's better to judge um my positions um on their face values not try to tag me as far right or as center right in many in many issues i uh, i think uh, my positions are extremely well accepted uh, within the Israeli uh, majority uh, consensus. In some issues, um, I'm, I'm in the right, um, but but I think that's, uh, that's not, uh, it's better to describe the religious Zionist party. I, I think the numbers also shows that uh, majority, that the number of, of seats um, we have in the Knesset are way more than uh, what the uh, Two uh, uh, left-wing parties that usually are not described as far left are got. So we are bigger than them, and and uh, and I think I think we are well in the center of the Israeli man. Simcha, would you say that after October the seventh, you're more in fashion than you were on October the sixth? Um, I think I think the positions that uh, traditionally were held by um, by the right in Israel, um, and again, I don't think there is a lot of difference between the views that I hold and the majority of the members of the Likud, for example, on on issues of concerning the Palestinian Authority, the two-state solutions, which is not two, not states, and not a solution. Uh, I think I think that uh, that became um, common view now even among the left and definitely among the center. How united is the Knesset now behind Netanyahu. He has developed, if you like, a, a sort of war cabinet involving Benny Gantz, who obviously 
is not part of his coalition and never will be. And yet we are more united, aren't, uh, aren't Israel, isn't Israel now, uh, since the war began. People are more behind Netanyahu, even though perhaps de facto his career is probably over at the end of this war. So, so I think that the term is not united behind Netanyahu or united behind uh, the government, uh, the, the cabinet, the security cabinet. I think the majority of the Knesset, the, uh, like 100 Knesset members, 110 Knesset members, are united behind the State of Israel effort to defeat Hamas and get our hostages back. The goals of the war are uh, very uniting in that matter. Everyone supported, even people who do not like Netanyahu, even people who do not like Benny Gantz, even people who do not like uh, Eisenkot or any other member of the war cabinet or the security cabinet or the people who don't like my party, doesn't matter, united behind the goals of the war. Um, and and that, I think that's the way to look at it. Some people are, have their differences with other parts of, of the coalition, uh, either, either uh, Netanyahu or other parts. Some people do not, but it's not, but, but that not matters on, on the issues of the goals of the war. The public in Israel and the elected officials in Israel are united behind the goals of the war. Simcha, I'm really pleased that you could devote just a little bit of time to us and for coming on. Simcha Rotman, MK, a member of the Israeli Knesset for the Religious Zionist Party. Welcome along if you've just switched on. This is Johnny Gould's How to Make Peace in the Middle East. And we've had a fascinating first couple of hours on another How to Make Peace in the Middle East. A very good afternoon. My name is Johnny Gould. We're here for another hour. We've got a fantastic final hour of the show. In just a moment, we'll talk to Baroness Claire Fox about the implications of life in this country. We've seen pro-Palestinian marches, hundreds of thousands of people going onto the streets. Let's ask the question, is this putting the day of peace back several years. If you support the pro-Palestinian marches, what are you supporting? 03444991000. Then we'll wrap up the show as well with Benjamin Anthony, he of the Miriam Institute, the chief exec and founder of that organization. He once scribed something called the New State Solution, which was the idea that Israel would take the West Bank but Gaza and North Sinai, a part of Egypt, would also be created to create a Palestinian homeland. And your contributions have been instant and absolutely superb. I thank you for helping to contribute in how to make peace in the Middle East. Welcome along to how to make peace in the Middle East. One of the ways of making peace in the Middle East is to conduct a military conflict as quickly as possible with a view to clearing out terrorism and then reaching out further to the stakeholders within the Middle East beyond the Palestinian territories, those of Gaza and the West Bank, to look to the Gulf Arabs of Saudi Arabia, to look to those we've already made peace with in the West and across Israel the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and even Sudan, and say that Israel has never actually had a conflict with those nations. To look to Saudi, the daddy, who believe in certain new values. Saudi Arabia 2.0 is a very different country to that 
which harboured terrorists 20 years ago. And we have seen within the last hour breaking news that the IDF have covered more evidence of human shields being used in the most preposterous of ways. And I'm delighted to welcome to the studio Jonathan Sacerdotti with the latest. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, Johnny. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Now, you know, we are desensitised as journalists and indeed for those of us who constantly doom-scroll social media with terrible pictures that we can't unsee, I'm just wondering how desensitised you are by seeing a children's cot above a tunnel which you've just revealed has come from the IDF. That's right. The IDF have just released footage showing these tunnel shafts that they talk about a lot. So they've got this whole network of terror tunnels underneath Gaza. They say constantly behind civilian infrastructure. And the latest one they showed was actually in a house, somebody's regular home, in the children's bedroom underneath the crib. This was the entrance to the tunnel. So I think this points some way towards justifying what it is they say they've been doing, which is trying to take out this infrastructure of the terrorists. But obviously there's going to be what they call collateral damage, which is to you and me when civilians end up getting injured or killed. Um, of course, they tried to clear out as many civilians as they could uh, to undertake that work. And then just in the last few minutes, actually, they've released some more footage, uh, which shows a massive tunnel that they've uncovered, one of the biggest yet, near the Erez crossing, which is a crossing between Israel and Gaza. They've actually said that they've been in there for a few weeks now, trying to make it safe and um, see what's in there. From the pictures, these ones you can see are actually the tunnel workshop where they worked on digging and creating the parts big enough you see there to fit that massive truck down there yeah. um, this of course the areas crossing for those who don't know it's quite an important place because until october the 7th it's where all sorts of goods and people crossed over between israel and gaza so that included uh, more than 800,000 gazans who crossed in 2022 into israel uh, more than 550,000 who crossed over in the first half of 2023 and, and had things carried on like normal those numbers would have come close to a million so this idea that gaza was totally closed off to israel before the massacres of the 7th of October is actually fallacious and, and in reality uh, there was the beginnings let's say or, or maybe not so much the beginnings of, of people being able to go across for example 18,500 Gazan workers used to cross into Israel in order to work there with work permits and because the average pay in Israel is six times higher than in Gaza. That meant that they took money home to stimulate the economy in Gaza. So all of these things that you might have assumed were good for the Gazan economy, Gazan life, were actually uh, ultimately scuppered by what Hamas did. And you can just see this is how they dug those tunnels. This is footage that they re recovered from the actual Hamas cameras and Hamas files of them digging that massive tunnel at the area's crossing. They say it didn't cross under the border into Israel, but it came right up to it, uh, something like four kilometres of tunnels. Um, so it's a mixture of footage that they've revealed of them trying to make it safe and also footage they've managed to acquire of Hamas building the tunnels in the first place, using all that aid money that Britain and other countries have poured into the Palestinians' coffers, only for it to be hijacked for this sort of thing and for their leaders to end up becoming billionaires and many of them basing themselves now in Qatar. And it's calculated that there are 500 kilometres of tunnels underneath Gaza and it is a huge, perhaps almost impossible job to annihilate all of them. 
what is the solution to this subterranean part of Gaza? I think the solution is sadly what we're seeing Israel having to do, which mm. is really, really difficult fighting and hand-to-hand -hand combat sometimes, house-to-house, -house, uh, going under these houses, into these tunnels, where there are often ambushes. There are often terrorists who base themselves inside there, waiting who to... Who will know those tunnels better than course. the IDF. So they're working on a mixture of intelligence that they've got from various sources, including the many terrorists that they did arrest, uh, both on the 7th of October and since then, uh, in the engagements in the Gaza Strip. Those people are giving them information that's helping them to work out how to act. They're going into the tunnels, they're they're really taking the fight directly there and of course airstrikes as, as well but they can't just bomb the whole place from the air to get rid of the tunnels because as we said they're very often built underneath hospitals schools mosques we've heard domestic homes uh, all sorts of civilian facilities which really should be out of bounds are now covering over these tunnels also there's the possibility that some of the hostages are still inside those tunnels and that's a terrifying idea, not just for the hostages, but also it means that to try and take them out, there is the risk of, of killing the hostages themselves. Uh, it's worth also just noting at this point that the UN tweeted just the other day that they condemned one of the Israeli methods of trying to get rid of the tunnels, which is they, they had been looking at flooding them with seawater. They'd install mm. pumps and they have tested doing that. I think they started doing that to some of them. The UN said that this this wasn't a good idea. Uh, it could cause uh, difficulties in Gaza and problems. It, it, the problem here is I think that we see that institutions like the UN are willing to criticise what Israel's doing because it's very difficult and it involves balancing very hard decisions. But they don't really seem to have any ideas of how to deal with it. They certainly didn't do anything to stop UN money being funnelled into building these tunnels. Just think about the amount of concrete the millions and millions of dollars that it will have taken to dig them, to build them, to reinforce them. They've got blast doors, they've got toilet facilities, bathrooms, sometimes kitchens, I believe, weapons storage. Uh, all of it is, is what you can see from this shot. It's an IDF drone, which is actually showing the soldiers as they're looking into the, the mine shaft that goes into the tunnel. Uh, it goes all the way down into there uh, and up to the areas crossing. Um, and I, I think it's just tragic to know that all of this is underneath the homes of ordinary citizens in Gaza and it's there to sabotage the very crossing that was meant to provide humanitarian and, and financial aid to Gazans. That is the blow, isn't it? And that will resonate through Israeli society that the very function of the Erez crossing, which was to attempt to produce something neoliberal in the Gazan economy to encourage 18,500 Gazans to come into Israel and earn multiples of what they could do at home being used like this. How do you think that will embolden Israeli public opinion about the war itself, the prosecution of the war and indeed the rest of the world who still calls for humanitarian pauses and of course in some extreme cases for ceasefires. Well this tunnel in particular goes up to 50 metres below the ground. It's quite a feat of engineering mm. and I do think that particularly because of its placement there at the Eros Crossing it, it is very depressing even for those who were believing that there was some kind of coexistence that could take place mm -hmm. between the Palestinians in Gaza and the Israelis because all of that coexistence was stopped because of 
what happened on the 7th of October and this tunnel. I mean, it's also worth watching as there's a bit of footage of the actual crossing point, how it was before October the 7th and how it is afterwards, because they particularly focused on it on that day as well. During the massacres, they completely trashed it. Before then, again, it would be a surprise to many British, British news consumers that it was more or less like an airport. The footage, it looks like a regular kind of airport. There's x-ray machines, there's sort of entrance gates. Um, but it was a very civilised looking place. You could see in the footage Palestinians uh, speaking with the Israelis who were there, the military personnel who, who overlooked and oversaw the facility. And I think that it's remarkable that all that was going on, almost under the radar, even though it's in full sight. Those people were often crossing into Israel, not just for work, by the way, but also for medical care. Tons of, of Palestinians, thousands of Palestinians entered Israel to receive medical treatment. Over 7,000 Gazans entered Israel in 2022 to receive medical treatment. Um, and I mean, that, that had to stop as well. And you can see now what the problem is. There'll be a huge portion of Israeli society that will always be nervous to say the least they won't trust people coming over mm. when in, in actual fact some of the people that were taken hostage on that day were volunteers who used to drive those palestinians who came over at the crossings to the hospitals for treatment one such man who had treatment in an israeli hospital of course was yehya sinwa the leader of hamas in gaza he wasn't taken over as a humanitarian case. He was actually in prison in Israel on three life sentences for killing Israelis and Palestinians who he thought had uh, collaborated with Israel. Um, he, for example, killed one man by accident during an interrogation. He was known to be quite a brutal man, uh, still is. He received medical care in Israel for brain tumour. Um, he, despite all that, and despite being exchanged for Gilad Shalit, the soldier who was taken hostage, he was part of that exchange deal. Over a thousand Palestinian prisoners were given back in return for the one soldier. He then went and set up the Hamas that we know now and, and is the architect of the October the 7th massacres and the war that's taking place now. So this man, who received medical treatment in Israel, is also responsible for this exact tunnel we've just seen uncovered by the IDF and for this very war which is seeing life for Gazans just absolutely destroyed. On the upside, Gilad Shalit got married and had children and who knows what Gilad Shalit's child will do in the world. We have to have that faith in the terrible consequences of the release of Palestinian prisoners. The truth is that there are Palestinians and there are Israelis living in that part of the world. And I think any solution to this problem that's been mm -hmm. going on for decades is going to involve both of them having the freedom to live safely. Yes. Um, I, I agree with you. That but the, there's the also Palestinians, Israeli Arabs of course. who are the same as the Palestinians and they live with each other. And there are Israeli Arabs and Palestinians who are in the same fa family and some nominally call them Palestinians. Oh, I'm a Palestinian. And some call themselves Israeli Arabs, so uh, who, who are the same people, but some who believe in the Zionist entity and some who believe in Israel. I, I, I have family members who, who their birth certificate says they were born in Palestine. They're Jews. <laughs> yes. I think that, you know, these things are complicated. I, the other week I interviewed um, a, a very interesting gentleman on my podcast, Peace Talk. He told me he's a... a an Israeli Arab identifies as Palestinian politician, uh, Mohammed Darawasha. And he said that 
he of course wanted a Palestinian state, but he traces 27, I think it was, generations of his family living where he does in the West Bank. Uh, when I asked him, when there's a Palestinian state, are you going to go and move there then? Uh, guess what he said? No. He said he wants to live where he is, which will be, he said, in any two-state solution, still in Israel. So I think these things are very complicated. Uh, he doesn't want to move 30 kilometres down the road to a new Palestinian state if it exists, because he would consider himself to be a refugee there. Instead, he wants to live in the bit that will be Israel. And that's true of many Palestinians who currently live within the borders that would be Israel in any two-state solution. Many of them would prefer to stay there. I, I think that... The, the truth of it is that a Palestinian state, as Israel keeps saying, and I can't blame them for this, needs to be without an army and without the ability to attack Israel in the way that we saw on the 7th of October. Mm -hmm. Anything short of that, they're never going to sign up for. And that's why I think we've heard Tippi Hotovelli, the ambassador for Israel to the UK, and then Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, saying, well, of course we haven't got a Palestinian state. Look what it would have done if we'd made a Palestinian state in the West Bank. It may have acted like the Palestinian statelet, as they put it, in Gaza. Now, I can sympathise very much with that position from Israelis. Of course, one can sympathise also with the position from Palestinians, that this is a cycle and this is their form of resistance. But nothing can justify violent terrorism, nothing can justify massacres, nothing can justify any of that. So I, I, I fully understand and subscribe to Israel's view that actually any solution which involves a Palestinian state needs to be one that just cannot possibly carry out that sort of massacre. Secure borders for Israel before any Palestinian state could even be imagined. And now, let's talk about the implications to society in this country, as mentioned. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Baroness Claire Fox of Buckley. She's the director of the Academy of Ideas and sits in the House of Lords. Welcome to you, Claire. It's great to be on the show. It's great to have you, and thank you very much for sparing time. Now, you are someone who is deeply troubled by the hundreds of thousands of people who've taken to the streets, not just in London, but across the country, of the pro-Palestinian marches. You worry about why people are doing it and the message that's going out from there. Yeah, I, we should clarify that you couldn't watch the scenes of civilians being killed in Gaza um, and not be have some moral dilemmas about the um, issues at stake, whether this is too much warfare, or whether the the Israelis are behaving in a way that's um, appropriate and so on. And if it were that, in this instance, that people were genuinely simply moved by those scenes, then you might think, why am I on the radio talking about it? Just to maybe a difference of opinion. But I think that what's much more troubling is that, for example, there's been a big demonstration outside Zara, the shop, on the basis that somehow Zara is has somebody who works for them, their chief designer, who has sided with Israel and not been sympathetic to uh, some of the uh, Hamas uh, uh, arguments. And they've made a big fuss about it. And this is this should ring alarm bells because it's not just been here. It's been Starbucks. It's been Marks and Spencers. You think that anyone with a kind of slight inkling of history might go targeting shops that are associated with Jews. When did that happen before? Yes. I think that we can seriously say that one of the troubling bits for me since October the 7th has 
not just been this horrible war that has unfolded, but the growth of anti-Semitism or the explicit expression of anti-Semitism on the streets of Western countries, on university campuses, and people just casually and cavalierly thinking this doesn't matter. Well, it matters a huge amount. It's utterly destructive. And it does indicate that we have a real generational problem, I think. Claire, it seems to me that uh, the term progressive seems the more progressive you are, the more you are inclined to mob rule. We are seeing mobs turn up, not just in their tens, but in their hundreds of thousands, to beat down a silent majority in this country. How do we fix this, particularly if this is coming, as you say, from people who are under 35? Well, first of all, I suppose I have to clarify. I mean, I come from what was the progressive left in some ways. But I it, it's, de it's deviated. There's sort of two sets yeah. of progressives, aren't there now? But, that, but that's why I think we need to be clear, because yeah. I think one of the things that's happened is that um, for those of us who for many years were interested in supporting Palestinian self-determination, we, we might well associate that with uh, liberation movements of the past, all sorts of things. What we've got to recognise is that for some time now, that is of the past. Hamas actually slaughtered and silenced any kind of progressive solution in the Middle East, in Gaza, some many years ago and continues to do so. So I think one of the things that's happened is, is that you get a confusion because when I talk to young people about what they're supporting in relation to what they see as Gazan resistance, the problem is, is that they're imagining this as some sort of like romantic, you know, fight back against the oppressor. They've all been uh, reared on a, a political ide idea that, that this is um, that we have a kind of dominant uh, uh, state like Israel is bound to be uh, representative of white supremacy, of colonialism, and so on and so forth. And they want to be associated with the progressive anti-colonial victim side. Well, first of all, this is just not historically accurate at all. And were they to read back a little further, they might notice that actually Israel emerged. It had to fight its own colonial struggle for Israel to exist in the first place against Britain, as it happens. But there's a kind of overly simplistic, moralistic view. And I think, therefore, you've got once you reduce everything to a real black and white moralism in that way, with no dilemmas, no historical nuance, very little reading. I mean, I just to say I'm only plugging this because I'm enjoying it. I'm reading uh, this book, Mandate, by Leslie Tumberg about the t uh, uh, Palestine 1919 to 1939. Yes. You can't read enough. You need to know more. You need to constantly challenge yourself. I've just read an article on Herd, which I didn't agree with. It was an interview on this issue. But it was important to read something I didn't agree with. But when you talk to people, it's literally Israelis, the Jewish state, are evil and the bad guys. Nobody talks about October the 7th, that's like, oh, that was just one day. This is many, many days. They don't recognize that this was a Jewish pogrom in a way that we should historically reflect what that means. And then the open anti-Semitism in this country means that what you described as the mob rule, it's like a hysteria. You know, people are actually behaving well. We have got to stop this happening. And it's almost like they would do anything to stop it. And that's why I think we're seeing such Emotionalism on the demonstrations. And, and the final thing I'd say is there are people who may be a bit nervous, you know, they're kind of walking alongside people who are shouting, um, you know, anti-Semitic slogans or or members of Hizbut or what have you. 
And it's not that they aren't don't feel queasy, but they don't do anything about it. So you've got left wingers who apparently people mainstream people involved in politics don't think of themselves as anti-Semitic at all. Don't think, but they turn a blind eye to it. They look away. Now we live in an era where you only have to say the wrong word and you can be accused of a microaggression and racism on a university campus. But somehow when it comes to slandering or slurring Jewish people, that's something we all have to kind of, well, you can understand it. They're, they're, they're suffering hard in Gaza and that's why people are so furious. And that kind of apologism is very dangerous. Claire, are we sleepwalking into another era uh, of uh, beyond the post-war settlement? Uh, we lived, I think, from 1945, perhaps up to the start of the Corbyn era in the Labour Party, in a settlement which was created by the Allies, by Churchill and Roosevelt, etc. But are we sleepwalking into another multipolar era where the American-led view of the world as the world's policeman has been superseded by the dictatorships of Iran, Russia and China? Well, I think ever since the end of the Cold War, there's been a difficulty for that view of the world. You know, America allegedly representing the free world versus the unfree world of the of the Soviet Union and its and its bloc and Eastern Europe and so on. And the collapse of the Cold War and the collapse of the, uh, the Berlin Wall, which, by the way, we should all be delighted happened but it didn't mean uh, that you had therefore a straightforward set of arrangements internationally but i think you can see that by the way when you look at the united nations attitude uh, in relation to um israel united nations is one of those post-war institutions like nato like these uh, arrangements that you say look at the united nations now its behavior in relation to israel is to treat it as a pariah state an exceptional state it behaves as though Israel's actions, and I don't just mean in the recent Gaza war, but consistently, they have basically identified Israel as a problematic state and al almost obsessively. And I think the behavior of United Nations agencies in relation to, for example, the, the explicitly filmed rapes and sexual degradation of women on October the 7th, where the UN Women's Organization looked the other way, would indicate that a lot of these organizations and institutions are not fit for purpose and so i don't it's not that i think you should just go along with everything america has ever said is the police the policeman or uh, 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 i don't know whether i should say police person uh, <laughs> yes. the you caught me there being politically incorrect again claire or something but anyway um but i you know i i would be heavily critical of a lot of american actions over the years uh, not least iraq but you know more recently but there's a lot more of them vietnam and so on and so forth since that post-war settlement but that's not really what's going on here i think what's happening is that as america's losing control it's more of a domestic issue because if you think about it the problem is not so much the you know what hamas is doing what i'm saying is is the citizens of western countries are actually so low the west they've been reared on this really uh, um, negative and nihilistic view that everything associated with the West, Western civilization, back to you know ancient Greek uh, uh, Athenian democracy, through to the Enlightenment, uh, the Renaissance, the modern industrial era, they're told was disastrous and awful. There's a kind of self-loathing there that then takes the form of always supporting those victims who say that the West are oppressing them. And that is, in a way, 
what's happened. I, I don't think this is um, uh, to honour the people of Gaza the way that Western progressives uh, are their supporters because they see them as a kind of universal victim without any agency, completely condescendingly. We support you regardless and we hate anyone who is fighting back, you know, Israel in, in a self-defence mode post uh, 7th of October, regardless of what you think about uh, how far the war has gone now. To see things in those simplistic terms is disastrous for this new world order that's emerging because it means that the West's own citizens are completely alienated and at odds from the nation states and the national traditions of the countries they live in. Sometimes people are too keen to blame that on, on immigrants who are here and they don't understand our ways. I mean, you go on any uh, university campus, you'll find that very often these are absolutely British students who are as as sucked up into all of this uh, nihilistic atmosphere about mm. Western views as anyone else. Claire, in this country, uh, we had an arm of political resistance on the Labour side under Jeremy Corbyn, which, if it had existed five years later at this time of war in the Middle East, would have caused unprecedented tensions. To the credit of Sir Keir Starmer, even though he may not have entirely cured the problem of the left, the Labour Party animal is a different one during the Corbyn years than to the one now. They are 15 to 20 points ahead of what looks like a hapless Conservative Party in the dying embers of its government, or is it we still have to wait for that election to come? But these have real effects on the ballot box. So if it is a Labour government next year, and as Sir Keir Starmer keeps on saying, I'm laser focused on getting into power. I will say anything to get into power. This will have an impact. The Palestinian protests will have an impact on British foreign policy should Labour beat the Conservatives and get into power this time next year. I think that's very true. Uh, although I have to say that I was very, uh, I noted that um, David Cameron Lord Cameron, we have to call him now. Yes. Um, uh, Lord Cameron. He's your mate here. now. He sits with you. I don't, I don't think that mate will ever be like <laughs> um, But anyway, uh, he, he's actually come out with it. I mean, his position on, on the war has been ambivalent, I think, mm. since he actually came into that new role. It's been much more of a fudge. And I think that I wouldn't, if I was Israel, I wouldn't rely on on the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom myself. Anyway, that's one side. Your question is on the Labour Party. And I have to give credit to Keir Starmer because he's been under an enormous amount of pressure. He and people like Wes Streeting been in, under an enormous amount of pressure internally within their own party to, as it were, go along with the call for ceasefire. And by the way, you know, it sounds like so you have to be a lunatic to not want a ceasefire. I mean, who doesn't want to end a war? You know, I'm a peacenik type. I'm an anti-militarist. But of course, in the context that we're talking, the ceasefire is only aimed at Israel. It's it's never the pressure is never on on Hamas to return the hostages, and it would effectively be, in many ways, Israel giving up on trying to uh, eradicate the threat that it faced on October the seventh, and which Hamas have stated will happen again and again and again until the Jewish state is destroyed, and so on and so forth, and the caliphate set up, and so on. So. Um, I think that Keir Starmer's done really well, but what I'm worried about is that the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn certainly 
uh, anti-Semitism was allowed to grow, but the majority of Labour Party members, indeed voters, were not anti-Semitic, but they were indifferent to the rise of anti-Semitism. Again, it's one of those things where you kind of look the other way. You don't notice it. It's not the kind of racist. In fact, you don't really think, you know, it's racism to be anti-Israel. I mean, no, you know, you can't be racist about Jewish people because aren't they all white? You know, those kind of prejudices yes. that we're yes. all the time now. And they were indifferent to that. I think Keir Starmer's got a real problem if he wins the election, which seems likely. Not that he's not been holding the line, but that the Labour Party has built itself in the modern era, not on ordinary working people's interests. It's not the old Labour Party. It's almost entirely a newly formed party based around identity politics, which is made a huge amount of, you know, identity politics when it comes to women, when it comes to gender, when it comes to race. And of course, he now finds that that is problematic because then there are swathes of people who are in the Labour Party, who are Muslims, who because that identity politics has been encouraged by the Labour Party, don't identify themselves so much as British Asians, but have been encouraged to see themselves as Muslims or encouraged to see themselves in, in through the prism of their identity rather than through the prism of their politics. And that means that there's the danger for him of almost civil war in the Labour Party. And that has not been eradicated at all. And you can tell that there's a real nervousness there about what's going to happen. I, I'm worried beyond just this issue yes. that identity politics is going to be far too big a feature of the Labour Party when yeah. it gets into power. Identity politics is what troubles Baroness Claire Fox most. And thank you very much indeed for joining us. And if to paraphrase some of what uh, Baroness Claire Fox was saying there, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Falsely attributed to Edmund Burke, according to the internet. Uh, I always thought it was Edmund Burke. Maybe you'll tell me otherwise. 03444991000. After this short break, stay tuned. How to make peace in the Middle East. We've got Benjamin Anthony coming up, a veteran of three Israeli-Arab conflicts. Coming up after this short break, really enjoy your show, Johnny. I always come away with a bit more knowledge to enable me to have a more informed opinion. Thank you very much, Kate in Barnsley. Believe me, it's the same for me here on Talk TV. This is the sort of programme that demonstrates the sort of discussion that should be held in universities and its educational system, and it allows for different points of view to be discussed. Benjamin Anthony after the break. Thank you very much, Jonathan. How to make peace in the Middle East on Talk TV. And thank you very much for your instant reaction to the show. Russell Probert has tweeted, thank you very much. Watch the show today. Johnny has hit it out of the park. A solid, two-sided approach to the truth in Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Great work. Thank you very much indeed to you, Russell. Uh, Hamas hides behind civilians, and that's why there are so many casualties on the Palestinian side. This is not emphasised much lately, says Eric in Carlisle. Thank you for that, Eric. John says... The statement from Lord Cameron and his German counterpart is outrageous. It's as good as he accuses Israel of deliberately targeting civilians. Now, what he's talking about is a pause in the fighting for humanitarian reasons, which may lead to a ceasefire. I think the difference between a pause and a ceasefire are there and there. You know, they're too far apart because Israel needs to destroy Hamas, and while there is a pause, and if there is a ceasefire, the job of getting rid of the terrorists who perpetrated the crimes of October the 7th will 
not happen. And Mason has tweeted, if the Jews and the Muslims can't share the land like civilised people, then nobody should have it. <laughs> Muslims go to Jordan, Lebanon and Syria and the Jews go to Western countries? Why aren't Arab nations taking their own in? Well, the answer simply is that Jews do uh, belong in the land of Israel. Muslims also, also belong in the state of Israel. There are Israeli Arabs there. Uh, the Jews don't necessarily belong in Western countries, although they have been in Western countries for over a thousand years and in Italy for even longer. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the show my next guest as co-founder and CEO of the Miriam Institute. Benjamin Anthony brings considerable experience and expertise to his position in the areas of policy-driven dialogue and debate about the state of Israel. When we first came to know each other, uh, Benjamin was scribing something called the New State Solution, which has perhaps been moved on somewhat since those heady days of trying to create peace in the Middle East before the Abraham Accords. He is a veteran of three Israeli-Arab wars, two in Gaza in 2012 and 2014, and in Lebanon in 2006. It's my pleasure to welcome you, Benjamin. Hello to you. Hi, Johnny. Nice to see you, and thank you for having me. It's nice to see you, and thank you very much. Can we talk, first of all, about the plight of the 137 hostages which remain there, but the pressure upon Israel, both internally and externally, to pause the fighting to get those hostages out as time is running out each and every day for them, as we saw with the tragedy that the IDF killed three of their own hostages just the other day. Yes, Johnny, and thank you very much for starting there. Just just the other day, I took a visit to Otefaza, to the area just surrounding the Gaza Strip, to Kfar, as specifically was the name of the kibbutz. And it was there that 28, 29-year-old Yotam Chaim lived. And Yotam Chaim, I went to see the home the home that he had inhabited, the home that he was building as a young adult, there inside Nachalos. And I was just appalled by the destruction that has taken place there. These homes of young men and women had been bombarded with bullets, machine gun fire by Hamas. These young men and women had then been smoked out of these homes as they sought refuge in the safe rooms of those small homes inside Kfaraza, inside this kibbutz adjacent to the Gaza Strip. And when they ultimately came out of their homes, people like Yotam Chaim were then frog-marched into the Gaza Strip, held there for 70, 70 days. And then we got the awful news that Yotam and two other hostages had survived the dreadful ordeal of being taken captive by this horrific, horrendous, depraved terror organization that is Hamas, only to emerge and then tragically to be gunned down by members of the Israel Defense Forces. It's a consequence of the atrocities of Hamas, of course. It's also a catalyst for the raised and intensified voices of the family members of these hostages for the Israeli government to do everything possible to bring the hostages back alive and swiftly I happen to believe the Israeli government is doing everything possible. But, of course, an impossible dynamic has been foisted upon the entire state of Israel by way of the murderous actions of Hamas and by the seizing of what was 240 members of our society into captivity and now around 130, 136 
members of our society remaining in captivity. What country has to deal with such dilemmas? What country has to deal with such a dynamic other than Israel? The answer is no country. The Jewish state is the only one that has to face down these threats. And I just find it appalling and disgraceful that this, despite the fact that this quandary, this dilemma is unique to the Jewish state, every other state seems to feel that it is eminently qualified to tell us how we should resolve this issue. They never having faced anything approaching what is upon the shoulders of our leaders, our legislators, our young soldiers, our commanders, our division commanders and our high ranked security officials. Uh, a little bit of humility would be in order, and I'd like to see that being displayed by our friends, our allies, and dare I say it, even those who are sworn enemies of the State of Israel. With five wars having been fought against Hamas in Gaza since Israel unilaterally disengaged in 2005, it is probably fair to say, Benjamin, that Israel has shown restraint in its war. The idea that it had in each of those wars, kicked the can into the future. But tragically, October the 7th has shown that actually no decisive war was fought and so therefore this terrible tragedy ensued. Benjamin, what is the answer this time? The total eradication of Hamas? And what about the, what the military call the collateral damage? The civilians that get killed? alongside the terrorists. It doesn't translate on television very, very well, and so Israel needs to prosecute this war as quickly as possible for public opinion not to be turned completely against the Jewish state. Well, your question is very important, and, and I expect nothing from you other than insightful questions. I want to, to challenge a little bit of the premise, Johnny, which is the, the title given to these operations hitherto within the Gaza Strip that being the title of war. In fact, Israel has not waged war against Hamas until this war, the Swords of Iron War against the Hamas terror organization that's currently underway. What we've done is we have waged varying degrees of military operations against the terror organization and also against Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is believed to be an even more sinister, potentially, an even more dangerous, an even more rabid organization that is dedicated towards the to the destruction of the Jewish people. We have launched operation after operation after operation, but we've never fought a war. Now we're fighting a war, and I have to say, I believe we're fighting as we ought to have fought from day one. The first time that rockets were fired towards the states of Israel, indiscriminately launched towards our citizenry and towards our civilians, the Israel Defense Forces, in my opinion, ought to have maneuvered with the singular goal of destroying, toppling, dismantling and wiping out Hamas. I think that it is justified for us to do so. I'm pleased that we're in the midst of doing that. Of course, I'm deeply saddened at the same time by the loss of life when it comes to the soldiers of the Israel Defense Forces, when it comes to the loss of life of our hostages. But I want to be frank, I'm not a government spokesperson. I'm not a spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces. My entire focus is on the loss of life of my people, the Israeli people, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. That's where my concern began following October the 7th, that atrocity that took place. And that's where my concern continues. And so I'm probably not the best advocate for 
what might be the best solution for finding peace at this time, because I think our top priority has to be to wage war. I believe we're doing it, and I believe that it has to be waged with a view to concluding it with the complete eradication of Hamas from the Gaza Strip. There can never rise again any terror organization that has even the daring to imagine carrying out such atrocities against the Jewish people as we saw carried out against us on October the 7th. So I'm afraid I'm not an advocate for peace. I actually believe we're in the midst of a very well-justified war, a war that was thrust upon us, for which we did not ask, that we did not seek. But with the help of God, we're going to win and win conclusively. Benjamin, thank you for explaining the difference between military operations and war. It's very important that words do count in these situations. Benjamin Anthony is the co-founder and CEO of the Miriam Institute. Wow, what a three hours we've had.